Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It uh, for 2021, a show about technology, the internet, uh, our very freedoms to uh, live and walk on this planet. Um, excited for the year. It's been a very long break, but um, we are glad to be back. Um, firstly, glad to be back, Dan Summon. Hello. How, how glad are you? Hi, how's it going? Sorry, um, I'm incredibly excited to be back for 2021. Um, tell, tell us about your summer. Was it was it good for technology? Bad? It did was, you it, throw it in the corner? It was empty of technology. The the only things I really did that involved technology were um, post photos of fish that I caught on the internet. Um, mm. So that 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 was kind of the the extent of my summer. It was just I've, I, I say this every year after we've come back. I switched off from technology, and every year it's still one of the nicest things to do. Um, mm. But it is having said that, it is great to be uh, entering back into the space with you guys, and oh, it's just so good to see you even through the camera. Laura Summers, you are back back in a big way. Um, how, how have you been? How's how's your summer been? Yeah, yeah, I'm great, Warren. I had a fun summer. I was also, like Dan, trying to disconnect a little bit, have some screen-free and, more importantly, Zoom-free times. Oh, yes. Um, I will say, though, the exception, as always, for me at Christmas was doing some fun computer admin for my Rellos. Always good to make sure everyone's got their computers up and running. Just a, a little a little smidge of that, but not too bad. I, I have to say I was so proud of my dad just before Christmas. He set up a Zoom with his siblings who are all kind of, you know, in their late 60s to mid-70s and didn't need to refer to any of the kids to have it set up. I was so proud of him. I was so incredibly proud of him. Hey, that's a gold star moment, I feel. Absolutely. Absolutely a gold star moment. <laughs> uh, I'll be with you also, I'm Warren Davies. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of don't remember too much of kind of my, my policy on tech uh, over that over that time. I did a great job of raising some tomatoes, which are now being destroyed by, by caterpillars literally outside this window uh, right now. But the tomatoes are, are very big and mm. I'm happy about that. Um, it's going to be a fun show. We've got um, some great guests and, and things to talk about uh, tonight. Um, a Secret Australia is... Uh, uh, a series of reflections from 18 prominent Australians uh, on WikiLeaks, on Australia, what it means for, for all of us. And um, happy to have Julian Burnside um, swinging by to have a chat to us about, uh, I guess, his reflections and, and perhaps some of the, the broader context for uh, A Secret Australia, which we do recommend you pick up. And um, also, uh, Jen Vick and the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance have partnered to launch um, Australia's, I think, first effort aimed at addressing online abuse of, uh, of women journalists. And it's actually going to be launched tomorrow. Um, and Vanessa Paik is dropping by to have a talk to us about that as well. I, I think I mentioned to her um, in the emails that I saw a lot of that going on in the second half of last year. I'm not sure if there was more of it or it was just more apparent, um, but interested to know what, um, yeah, uh, what's going on there. But before we have those those juicy chats, there are some interesting bits of news and we've got a fun one to start the year. Um, uh, our probe reporter, uh, Laura Summers, has um, probe news. <laughs> Sorry, you dropped out there for me a little bit. This is the fun of doing radio in, uh, remotely as you get the fun bits of internet latency. Um, yes, the UAE reached Mars for the first time with its Hope probe, which is a 
roughly SUV-sized probe um, that was sent on the deep space mission to go to Mars and do some science to get a better sense of Mars's weather patterns and hopefully catalyze a new science and technology sector. Um, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Emirates, is looking to wean its economy from oil dependence and look for new opportunities for innovation. So that's a very exciting first step for them into the space industry. Um, I, um, I'm excited that it shows the same kind of thinking where resources, um, just a different resource, let's go get some more resources from Mars. Well, yes, but also problem solving. If we're going to be a little bit charitable, you know, it's it's, it's very hard to go to space. It's very hard to do science in space. I think that, you know, to be fair, that's it's a little bit a little bit more complex than purely extractive mining, for, for instance. <laughs> I hope so. Um, I'd, I'd like I mean, to, yeah. Sorry, sorry, Dan. You well, go. No, no, I'm getting I, overexcited. No, well, I, I'd just like to think that you know, it's in in considering the change in kind of political leaders across the world in recent weeks that perhaps, um, you know, there's a bit more altruism that might be uh, applied to the exploration of space than there would have been maybe four or five months ago because, um, you know, I, I, I don't... Can't I don't, imagine what you could be referencing. Yeah, no. I'm, no idea. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the only reference that we're going to have to what, to that particular event over this particular... Yes. Over tonight. But, um, over yeah, the show. Over the show, yes. yes. yeah. But yes, yay for science missions, yay for space missions. That's something we always love covering on this show. Absolutely. So I think that that's a fascinating um, entrant into the space because, you know, pun intended, we don't see necessarily very much in the way of space exploration coming from that um, Middle Eastern block of countries. So very welcome to see um, that interest coming from UAE. Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a great thing to have more countries and more people out there. I, I think the, the idea of like the democratization of space rather than sort of, you know, superpowers kind of divvying it up and saying, you know, we'll take that side of the solar system, you take the other. Um, you know, we've seen that mm. historically on Earth. So let's get everybody out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, we don't really need Elon Musk to be the king of Mars, right? Let's, no. let's make no. sure it's a democratic space. Absolutely. Yes. He is, however, the king of uh, Bitcoin and, uh, I don't know, other kind of arbitrary currencies. He has all the seashells. Um, so Tesla have recently bought uh, 1.5 billion of uh, Bitcoins. Um, so I think my source for this is a little bit shady. It is a TikTok, but apparently 8% uh, of their cash reserve is now in Bitcoin. So they've just realized cash is not doing too much. Maybe let's just put, you know, one in 10 of our shekels uh, into Bitcoin. Um, and obviously it's caused a bit of a rush on it. So um, there's a lot of pro prospectors out there, obviously with the summer that we had with GameStop and, and all of that going on, people are very sensitive to large movements. And yeah, it's interesting. His, his Twitter, this is a little bit Elon nerdy. Um, his, his Twitter bio is just now hashtag Bitcoin. Um, and he's casually talking it up um, everywhere, which uh, obviously that's no coincidence. Um, but um, interesting. And I believe they're also talking about Tesla accepting Bitcoin to pay for cars. Um, so that will that will increase their, um, you know, like stockpiling of Bitcoin as a currency as well, which should be interesting. Correct. Yeah. I think um, I was reading about, I, I didn't actually know this because I've been one of the people kind of late to Bitcoin and I, I'm kind of sort of dubious about uh cryptocurrency in general but the the first the first bitcoin transaction um they believe was for a pizza and um if you paid for it in the equivalent value of bitcoin today it was a 600 million dollar purchase oh my god that's that's insane 
So, so what did we say that a Bitcoin is worth in, in kind of standard money that we remember what money used to be at the moment? It's about 60000 at the moment, right, so, for so Bitcoin. A, so a Tesla card um, will be one Bitcoin. Yeah, and I want to say that's USD, if yeah, I'm recalling correctly. That sounds about Not, right. Yeah, but yes, it's yeah. it's very high it's, it's, is the short answer. It's interesting that Elon... Well, I mean, what's not interesting and it's not really surprising, but the fact that he can just say something and then the whole world jumps. Like, remember when he said buy, or like, download Signal or buy Signal or something like that and everyone was like, oh, my God, Signal, we must do this. He, he, mm. for, for, for a guy who we deride, he still wields an enormous amount of power. He's like arguably, 15, yeah. 15 years, 15 years ago, he was in a cheap check suit at, like, the equivalent of South by Southwest, like pitching uh, an electric car as, like, a crazy idea. Like, I, I can't get the image of that check suit. Uh, out of my head. <laughs> like a dodgy second-hand car salesman. That's kind of the picture you've got in your mind. Literally, literally. And, yeah. like, he's, you know, he's a, he, uh, he gets a lot of bad press. Um, you know, he's overexposed and, you know, we're, we're, we're contributing to that right now. But, like, um, smart guy, lovely guy, but also it's staggering how quickly tech can sort of catapult you into the stratosphere um, for, for right and wrong reasons. But, um Talking of um, people who can make and break markets, do we want to talk a little bit more about this Google stoush that's been happening with the yes. Australian ACCC? Absolutely. So um, while while you were away, while we were away, there was a there's been a lot of brinkmanship between um, the Australian government and with uh, and Google, uh, largely um, based on the Australian government's. Uh, push to legislate that Google needs to pay Australian media companies for the content that they link to um, and that they provide in their searches. Uh, so Google have uh, threatened to pull all of its services, including search, from Australia, um, which would mean that we'd all need to go to DuckDuckGo, which isn't in itself a bad thing. Um, they've also been testing uh, limiting... Uh, access to news sites. So that the Google, on I think around mid January, Google uh, admitted that they had been running experiments on searches for newspaper websites in Australia that um, with you know a limited number of users to uh, basically hide content from those from those news outlets. Uh, the Australian government has uh, responded full throatedly along the lines of uh, American tech companies don't write our laws. And uh, Google have said, well, we, we might not write your laws, but we can control how you use our service. So, uh, Laura, I think in, in a nutshell, that's what it is. It's, it's kind of depressing that we're still talking about this. Um, I dare say it'll probably reach a climax as the legislation gets into and through the Senate. Um, but... It's yeah. I guess it's another watch yeah. the space kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Did it's you... been interesting to see them try very hard to push public opinion in their direction. I don't know if anyone's been noticing this, but when you go onto oh, Google yeah. now as an Australian user, you get those ads popping up all the time. That's like, here's how freedom of speech could be impacted by this code, or here's what's going to go wrong for you as an individual Google user. So they are they're pretty shamelessly trying to um, sway the tide of public opinion against this code. And I mean, I think there's actually some genuine and worthwhile discussions to have about whether this is the right way to like rebalance the power of income and ad revenue from these services. And I, I'm actually very empathetic to the questions of if this is the right approach. But it's certainly interesting to see Google and Facebook push back against any attempt to really like, you know, force them to come to the table and talk about the business model and actually genuinely grapple with like what's a fair way to pay for the services that they're providing. Um, Def definitely. And 
we, we've got to remember that we're not the first country to attempt to do this. Uh, I think Spain mm. has tried, a couple of other European countries have attempted putting their own laws that aren't necessarily what we're doing or what the Australian government is attempting to do and have kind of been kowtowed largely or cowed down by Google. I think it's fascinating how... Um, the, the public campaign of we're on your side in the same way that, you know, Facebook like to position themselves as like we're here for you and we're being persecuted by governments and surely you don't agree with the persecution is, is fascinating. I, I think um, picture the, picture the uh, is it the Spider-Man meme comic where everyone's pointing at everybody else and picture the government pointing at both Google and people and picture Google pointing at people in government and us pointing at Google and um, government going, you guys need to sort it out. Uh-huh. But the whole idea of where on your side is really complicated because governments governments can't afford to develop and provide these services, so they outsource the responsibility of finding good information and what's become a public utility effectively to someone like Google. And they also have the sneaky back door sometimes to get access to those services, so they've got a very cosy relationship. And then they kind of like brush them off when um, the people sort of kick up a stink. Um, so it's, it's it's very complex. I was I was very surprised, Laura, to see that. Hey, here's something really important to see, and I got in some super spicy threads with UX designers about you know the brash yellow badges on the beautiful white screen and stuff like that. Um, really went down a wormhole, but it's fascinating. I, I I I'm not sure if it's just me or if it's the bubble that I'm in, but when when you see stuff like we're on your side, I'm like. Um, Am I in a different planet, not just a different bubble about how Google perceives, you know, who they're here for? Yeah, I, I feel like you really don't get to play the, you know, human, I'm, you know, coming to bat for the little guy or for the individual card when you're Google. It just it, <laughs> it feels, it you know, like there's a cognitive break there that doesn't really work. So, yeah, there's there's definitely um, a bit of cynicism or a little bit of like, you know, poor thinking at play with this this PR attempt. Definitely. But anyway, and I sort of think that maybe that's a good transition. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So um, I, that's, these, are, these are topics that we're going to be touching on a lot, I think, in the coming year. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. And we are now very, very lucky to have a guest joining us on the show to discuss a recently published book called A Secret Australia. Julian Burnside QC is a human rights and refugee advocate, author, an Australian barrister, and also contributor. Um, uh, contributed an essay to A Secret Australia, and he's here to talk to us about WikiLeaks revelations, Australian on the global stage, and the nature of whistleblowing in the digital era. Welcome, Julian. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Um, I assume from the fact that you've got a copy of the book that you've read the introduction by Philip Adams, which is ha- fantastic. Absolutely. That's actually a great intro because I was so fascinated by this comparison he makes between these two prominent people in the, the from Australia to the, the media organizations of the world, which is Julian Assange on the one side and WikiLeaks, and of course Rupert Murdoch and the yeah. Murdoch News Empire. Um, is that something, is that a, a metaphor or sort of um, comparison that it crossed your mind before you saw that piece as well? Um, I, I always understood Assange to be a journalist, um, but I had not put the pieces together. Not, mm-hmm. and, and Philip does it very, very cleverly. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Um, 
I actually wanted to uh, kick us off into this and quoting a little piece from the Scott Ludlam piece because I thought it was so spicy and sufficiently worded. I thought it might be a fun way to kick off this discussion. So when he's describing WikiLeaks, he says, instead of simply amplifying state-sanctioned deception, WikiLeaks inverted the surveillance panopticon and began publishing the carefully indexed source code of empire directly into the public domain. Now, I, I just thought that was beautifully worded. Not, not that I don't want to quote from your piece as well, um, Julian Burnside, but I thought it might be fun to look at some of the other pieces. And um, it, I think it's fascinating to think uh, the inversion of power that's like so beautifully described there. And now we're seeing the power um, reestablishing itself as it tries to subvert Julian Assange and prevent him from regaining his freedom and his normal life. Um, and I thought perhaps since some stuff has happened since the book has been published, perhaps you could give us a quick summary of where things are at with him for his legal case. Um, well, as you know, uh, the extradition application was refused in England. Uh, it was refused on the basis that he might, he was at risk of committing suicide in Belmarsh. Um, and I think that's a that's a realistic risk. Um, the the Americans, I, I read today that Biden has decided that they're going to pursue the extradition, and that means that there will be an appeal. The appeal time, I think, finishes on <clears throat> Friday of this week. And um, what follows from that is that the the Americans will take the matter to the Court of Appeal and will try to argue that the judge was wrong in deciding that he shouldn't be extradited because he might kill himself in Belmarsh. I think that the team should uh, then try and argue all the other grounds as a cross appeal because mm. the idea that he could be extradited and maybe argue in theory he could spend 175 years in jail in solitary confinement in America. Now, that's a monstrous way of dealing with him. And that I think I think what it does is bring close to your mind the fact that governments pretend to support whistleblowers, but when push comes to shove, they really hate whistleblowers because whistleblowers expose the all the shortcomings of all the politicians. Absolutely, and um, perhaps I I. I... When I first um, started reading and hearing about this case, I was really confused, and I suspect I'm not the only one. There's there's sort of a new, um, you know, like performance of power happening here, which is the U.S. attempting to prosecute a non-U.S. national under U.S. law, and this feels like a new phenomenon and a dangerous one, as far as I understand it. And I was hoping perhaps you could explain a bit more about sort of the legal basis for that that attempt to prosecute Julian Assange, because to me it seems ridiculous, but I'm assuming there's some way that they're saying it's it's valid. Well, that's why they're trying to extradite him. They're, they're trying to get him into America where the American law can be applied. Um, they, they, they have got laws which say that um, even though what he did was done outside America, nevertheless, American law can catch it. And that's not that's not legally unusual. But it has caused a lot of the mainstream media to fall in behind Assange. Uh, I think it was the English editor of The Guardian who said, look, if the Americans can extradite him and prosecute him this way, then what's going to happen to us? You know, if we, if we publish something that a government doesn't like, 
then there is a serious risk that the Americans will say, you're guilty of this or that offence against our law, and so we'll extradite you and punish you for it. And it's, it's very interesting that WikiLeaks first came to general attention, I think, with the screening of collateral murder, which showed um, 12 innocent civilians being murdered by machine gun from a helicopter in Iraq. And, uh, I mean, it's just awful viewing, even now. Um, and it's, it turns out that the there had been an attempt to get that video footage under FOI in America. The CIA tried to get it, and it was rejected. The application was rejected. And it's only because of WikiLeaks that we were able to see it. And that's why governments hate whistleblowers, because they show us things that the governments would rather keep hidden. Julian, I'm interested to know, do, do you feel Australia has had a broad-reaching conversation about, I, I guess, the, the WikiLeaks era and what it means for uh, Australia? Um, do you feel like this is a, a first attempt to kind of sort of broaden the conversation into pubs, um, Airbnbs, public transport? I mean, we, we talk about it a bit, but we're, you know, there's three of us, as you can see. <laughs> yes. Well, the fact that three nerds can talk about it is one thing. Um, I think it is... It, I, I'm not sure it's going to quite open the door in Australia. Um, Assange seems to have lost popularity to some extent, and he's certainly very unpopular in, in London, um, but his circumstances, are, I think, are very important and very serious, and we should all take it seriously because... Frankly, if he can be punished as a whistleblower, then you can forget about whistleblowers for the future. Uh, because even 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 if even if he is extradited to America and he succeeds in his defence, which he should, uh, the fact is that it's going to be like the Annika Smethurst thing. You know, Annika Smethurst was the subject of a search warrant by the federal police. She took the matter to the federal court and then the high court, and the high court eventually said, no, the warrant was invalid. But I reckon anyone who was a whistleblower would avoid giving it to uh, Annika Smethurst because, I mean, the, the, the fact that the feds had their hands all over her material all that time means that whistleblowers aren't safe. They, they absolutely aren't at the moment, Julian. Um, every now and then, though, we do hear people who po possibly have the power to make laws to protect whistleblowers jump up and down and say, oh, it's, it's time, we need to do something about it. Are they just pay paying lip service to the idea or do, do we actually have people who are willing to be champions and actually have the power to make these kinds of laws, maybe not in Australia but anywhere in the world? I think I think the people in the Australian system who complain about it are genuine. I've not any reason to doubt their genuineness. Um, and even if they're not genuine, at least they're saying the right things. Uh, we do need we need to genuinely protect whistleblowers. We need to understand that whistleblowers do make the government disclose matters that we should know about. I mean. Look at, look at the stuff that WikiLeaks has done. WikiLeaks exposed the collateral murders. They produced the, a report on the Afghan wars. They, um, they 
expose what was going on in Guantanamo Bay, which is pretty important. Um, and uh, they just they uh, exposed the fact that Trafigura was um, deploying toxic waste in the Ivory Coast. Now that's the sort of work. That's the sort of work that got Roger Casement knighted in England in the early 1900s. Although he was later executed for treason. <laughs> yeah, my, my, minor, minor detail. <laughs> getting to whistleblowers eventually. Uh, governments change, don't they? <laughs> yes, they their best hope. Um, yeah. But look, the problem, the problem is that nowadays I think um, most people don't know quite what's going on because we depend on the press to learn what's going on. And the fact that the press is dominated by the Murdoch press in Australia... Uh, means that we only know what the Murdoch press want us to know and it's very, very difficult for people like Assange to get the word up. And that's why, because of the relentless, um, low-key uh, speaking about him in the Murdoch press, that has caused real problems. And that's why I like the fact that Philip Adams, in his introduction, uh, or in his forward, rather, um, draws a connection between Murdoch and Assange. You could argue it's sort of character assassination by like long, long play, you know, like news, news article. Like it's, it's not any one piece, but it's sort of all of the, the, the impact of all of the doubts that are sown and all of the, the murkiness that's sort of established around his character mm. over time. Um, and certainly that's, that's one of the most important things for me about this case is that we really can't focus on whether we like him as a person or whether we think he's like a good person individually. The point is about his human rights, whether he was actually doing something illegal. And it's a it's the common strategy to try and paint someone as being a not appealing victim or, you know, like not the model minority or not the model victim and therefore not worthy of our um, sympathy and not worthy of our attention. Um, but that's very much a, a play to sort of distract us from the core issues at hand. Um, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Um, and it's very interesting that um, I mean, I spent I spent quite a bit of time with Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in 2012, just after he went in. Mm. And with his help, I drafted a letter uh, that ran for seven pages, a letter to go to Nicola Roxon, who was then the attorney general in Australia, um, setting out the risk that faced him if he was extradited to Sweden, because then it was Sweden that was after him. And the problem is that sent from Sweden, uh, he would likely be sent right to America, where Chelsea Manning was having a really hard time at back then. And um, Chelsea Manning was the one who simply refused to say that Assange did anything other than publish. And Daniel Ellsberg, who you'll remember from the Pentagon Papers, uh, helped establish the principle in America that a person who uh, actually uh, reveals state secrets uh, can be guilty of an offence, but a person who publishes those same state secrets is not guilty of an offence. And it's a very, very important principle. Absolutely. Um, I'm, that, that reminds me, I'm talking of the experience that Chelsea Manning had and what we think faces Assange if he does end up over in the U.S. Um, I'm reminded of the comparison you made between the 
um, U.S.'s the way they do treat whistleblowers and the way we expect them to treat Assange and the way the Australian government treats refugees and this sort of concept of endless detention and denial of due, due process as a sort of form of torture or, you know, like, a, you know, attempting to dissuade others from doing the same thing. And I thought that was a very interesting comparison. It hadn't occurred to me before. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in this sort of new approach by governments to not exactly persecute people, not martyr them precisely, but certainly make it very unpleasant to think that you might want to do that same sort of thing in the future. Yep. And uh, can I say, um, both the Labour Party and the Liberal Party ignore have ignored us. They've done nothing for him as a citizen of this country. Um, I, I think it's breathtaking. And one of the reasons people should read this book is that the, most of the essays, I think, are very good. I'm not including my one in that. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was okay, but um, the fact is that there's some very good essays, there's some very useful facts in it, and whether you like Assange or not is beside the point. What matters is that what he has done at immense personal cost until, until now, what he has done uh, he tells us a great deal about the importance of human rights and free speech. Absolutely, it's um, it's a really fantastic collection of essays. And um, Julian, before before we go, um, I do want to quickly ask, what do you think the prospects are for Julian Assange in the next? You know, now that now that he's been, uh, or now that his extradition has been blocked, he's still in Belmarsh Prison at the moment, isn't he? Yes, he is, and and still most most of the time in solitary, because Belmarsh Prison is used as a place where convicted terrorists are kept. Um, and he's being treated by the English government as badly as Australia treats refugees. Mm. So, so is is he? What 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 will happen to him next? Like, is he going to be charged with something in the UK? Has he even committed a crime in the UK? Uh, well, he he skipped bail first time round that he because he was bailed in relation to the Swedish extradition attempt. Ah, yes, um, he was sentenced to I think it was fifty weeks imprisonment, and um, he's done that time. Uh, I mean, he's been he's been in Belmarsh now for over a year. Um, so he's I, done that time many but, times over. Yeah, yeah, mm. uh, and he's done it in dreadful circumstances. Uh, but but you know, it's it is as you said, Laura. It is a bit like the way we treat refugees. As long as you badmouth them often enough, um, they will be th their punishment will be overlooked. You know, mm. the public simply doesn't care. Mm. And 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 I, th I think on on that depressing note, unfortunately, I think we need, we do need to uh, to wrap this up. Um, Julian Julian Burnside has been uh, con has contributed to this fantastic book, um, uh, A Secret Australia, where in which he and seventeen other prominent Australians discuss what Australia has learnt about itself from the WikiLeaks revelations. Um, you, we have been speaking to uh, QC, a human rights advocate and genuine national treasure, Julian Burnside. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. We are very excited to be having a chat about uh, an interesting topic and uh, glad that uh, people are getting on top of it as well. Um, Genvic and the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance have partnered to launch uh, Australia's first effort aimed at addressing online abuse among um, or 
uh, aimed at uh, women journalists. Uh, we're now joined by Vanessa Pake, who's um, part of the uh, the the um, the initiative here. Vanessa, thanks for for joining us on the show tonight. It's must be must have been at least one or two years since we've had a chat. Vanessa Pake, are you there? I am here. Hello. Great. <laughs> uh, second Amazing. Test. Warren and Vanessa, can you hear each other? Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Hi, Warren. Hey, Vanessa. How's it going? Um, yes, we, we just did a, a bit of a, um, a bit of an introduction to what's going on and uh, the fact that Genvic and uh, the MEAA have, have got together to work on this um, uh, initiative and I, I believe uh, are launching a report tomorrow. Um, don't read the comments, enhancing online safety for women working in the media. Uh, are all of these things true and, and what have you been up to uh, in regards to this? <laughs> all of these things are indeed true. Um, so, yes, yeah, so as you said, um, Gender Victoria, Gen Vic, has teamed with the MEAA, Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, and also with Australian Community Managers, which is the organisation that I run, um, to pull together a set of tools and resources to support women journalists in battling online harassment. So as you would know, and, and as many people know out there, threats against journalists are nothing new. They've been around you know, for as long as they've been journalists, especially those who speak truth to power. Uh, you know, and, and in some of the ways that, that Julian was talking about earlier, uh, challenge the status quo, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, these things can disproportionately affect uh, individuals or groups who are already subject to certain kinds of abuses or targets because of you know, their identity or their, their life circumstance. So vulnerable groups of various kinds, minorities, women, um, people who are targeted because of their racial identity, their religious affiliation, things like this. So we do find that consequently, unfortunately, women journalists kind of sit in that intersection of two groups that people love to attack online. So they are subject to a really a really high amount of this stuff. It's it's is going up year on year too. So I think in 2016, the MEAA did a survey of about a thousand journalists, um, and they found that a really huge percentage of those um, the women journalists that they talked to had experienced online harassment, trolling, and stalking during the course of their work. And I guess the critical piece here is that they also found that 32% said that their employer, so their public publisher or their organiz media organisation, didn't really know about it, didn't really have any resources or policies to help or support them. Not that they necessarily weren't keen to support, but they just didn't know what to do. They didn't have the, the support structures or infrastructure in place. So these new do tools off the back of a lot of research that the MEA has done, that GenVic's done and other international organisations kind of come together. They've engaged ACM because we're moderation and community management experts and we've all put together um, a set of resources, moderation guidelines, new tools to help employers deal with this um, and, and recommendations about how organisations should, yeah, should get on the front foot of this and you know, that, that it's not really an option to protect, you know, to protect people when they're in this situation. If you're, these days, for most of us, our work environment is at least partly online and for journalists, you know, it's, it's kind of non-negotiable. You're going to be on social media and digital platforms. So things like online abuse are really a workplace health and, health and safety issue. So people are working, they're working on Twitter, um, their employers are glad we're getting extra value out of this journalist who's following the story or, you know, doing, doing the job of the journalist as we consider it, but 16% of them said, of journalists said, I get, I'm not aware of any guidance or any support or any resources about how to deal with these kinds of things. Is that, is, is that fair? Yeah, it is. Yep. 
Um, and I think it's, you know, it's most often not negligence. It's more ignorance. So people that just don't think there are resources, don't, aren't quite sure how seriously to take it, um, just don't know where to turn for that resource, those resources or advice. Uh, and then, of course, there are a few employers and organisations out there who really don't necessarily prioritise this. So this this set of resources, are, you know, is, is really part of a global movement around digital safety right now. And, you know, in some some ways, it kind of intersects with the proposed Online Safety Act that the Australian government's considering at the moment as well. To just, to, I think, to treat these harms more a little more seriously, uh, and obviously, it throws up a whole, you know, some some complicated issues around free speech and things like that. But ultimately, what we're talking about here are real and serious harms. We're not talking about restricting anybody's right to an opinion. We're talking about death threats, stalking, abuse, um, you know, and that those would not be tolerated in a physical workplace, nor should they be tolerated in a digital workplace setting. And I think, you know, obviously this report specifically concerns journalists and their sets of uh, uh, challenges and their sets of working environments. But really, as more and more of us work in digital and remote teams, yeah, I could see this you know, becoming much more widely adopted and, and having us sort of have more conversations about how these things play out. You know, if somebody's normally in, in, in person at a workplace and then they now they're on a digital workplace with their remote team, what about if abuse is playing out, you know, in private messages on their, you know, their internal enterprise social network? You know, how is that managed? So these things will happen, do happen. They can spill into the real world. I mean, digital is the real world, but you know what I mean. They can spill into offline violence. There are, you know, sadly quite a lot of cases of female journalists being murdered um, after they receive threats online. There's a pattern there. Um, so this is a terrific initiative and definitely one we at ACM um, are really proud to be involved with. Um, Vanessa, I'm really curious about the research this report did into bystander action because I think, like, it's, it can be hard for someone observing this kind of abuse to know what to do or if to do anything at all. Or, like, you know, like the, the, the report sort of says, don't read the comments. And there's it's kind of a truism that you don't feed the trolls, you don't engage with them. Um, but there are real, like, aside from the physical risks, there's also real reputational harms that can happen here. So people want to be able to protect their reputations online and to sort of stay in good standing with their communities and with their followers, for instance. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping you could tell us more about sort of validity or the power of um, bystander action and what that looks like? Yeah, that's it's such a great question. And I think it's really central to so many of the frictions that we see playing out on social media these days where, you know, whether it's, it's cancel culture for want of a better term and, and, and things like that where people, you know, people are making, starting to make choices in some regard of, you know, what they speak out against, what, what they call out, what they don't call out, where they draw those personal lines and boundaries um, but of course there is as you alluded to often good people might would, would like to speak out and call that bad behavior but they may fear repercussion in their own personal life or their own professional life and that's certainly the case we see with um and the research not just from from genvic and meaa but um, bodies of academic research will show that you know you've uh, those who are disproportionately affected by this kind of abuse are also the ones that often, you know, have the greatest risk of reprisal um, and, and fear that. So they may want to rally around their, that person and say, this is unacceptable, I'm going to report this, or, you know, uh, step up and defend them, call out the action publicly. Um, but they, too, are, are fearful of, you know, getting a death threat. I, look, I've been working online for about 25 years. I've taken stalkers to court. I've had all sorts of misadventures with crazy people on the internet. Um, and, you know, I've been in that situation. I know what the bystander effect does and I know how important it is to be a good digital citizen and partic to participate in what I would call kind of a collective 
governance where we're all playing a role. Uh, I think it's incredibly critical. But I've also been on the side of that where, you know, in, in a bit of a maelstrom online where I know that if I step up and help somebody, I'm going to get threatened and, you know, and, and will be at risk. And, you know, there are certain times when I have to guard my own mental health and say, I can't do that right now. I just guess I can't do that. I have to leave that to somebody else. <laughs> so I think it's a, it's a really interesting dilemma and a tightrope that a lot of us have to walk. There's a lot of evidence to suggest both in academia, in industry and in professional community management practice as well that, you know, this digital culture stuff, it is... It is collective, it is shared. So when the community, you know, what we, what do they say? You know, what we don't condemn, we condone. So when we do let things slide, when we let, let people hang out to dry and, and suffer harm where they're visible and we can see them, it has a flow on effect and it does normalise that for a lot of other people. So yeah, I do think the example, the example you walk by is the, is the standard that you accept, you know. Mm. To yeah, mangle exactly. a, a phrase. I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit about um, the recommendations. If it's not kind of a spoiler for your for the big day tomorrow and kind of what have you, can you t can you tell us about some of the like very practical things that I think everyone can go? You know what? We could all learn a little bit from this. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so yeah, so I'll give you a sneak peek. So it is it is being launched tomorrow, which is which is really exciting at a, at a bit of a special event online. But then it will be available for everybody to access. So I don't think they would mind if I share a little. Um, but it, I guess it's a series of resources. It's you know it's a series of moderation guidelines, um, which uh, we, we've inputted to at ACM uh, as has Gen Vic um, to to help um, sort of establish I guess a an industry-wide code of conduct on this. Uh, a lot of it seems like it should be common sense, but it, it really isn't, and it isn't enshrined in um, codes of ethics or, or best practices in, in some key ways. So, you know, um, specifically things like, you know, um, requiring media organisations to supply support for their for their staff on these sort of fronts. So you're training them in resilience of making things like counselling uh, available to them um, before and during and after incidents or perhaps on an ongoing basis if it's appropriate. Also extending that su support to people like freelancers. There are so many casual and freelancers working in the media, of course, and it's one thing if you're inside an org and you have uh, access to structural support like... Um, digital counselling and EOP and things like that, but not everybody has that privilege. So making sure that those supports and resources are extended to everybody that you are, you know, you are working with them to um, getting them to work for you and put, put a voice out on your behalf. You're drawing value from that. Therefore, you have an obligation to ensure that, you know, they, they have the tools to deal with the problems that may come their way and that you are there as an extra layer of support as well that they can escalate to, that they can seek expertise around. Um, it also calls for things like, you know, a whole of organisation approach to this. So not dismissing it as, you know, something for the social media people or something for the HR people, but really looking at it from the top down and saying, how are we thinking about how our you know how our people are supported in their digital lives personally and professionally and how are we organizing that entire architecture of support um, from top to bottom so um, and I think that can also lead to some really important and provocative conversations around you know, around gender and inclusion in the workplace and often it does reveal you know it can kind of rip the bandaid off the culture in ways that can be a bit confronting but can be really um, important and constructive to have those conversations it also says you know that we um uh, you know, we we want to treat these things, as I said, as an issue of workplace health and safety. So not to, there's been, I think, this, since the birth of the internet, you know, it's been really easy to trivialise or exoticise 
some of the things that happen online as weird and ephemeral and kind of not important or not real. Um, certainly the first time I ever went to the authorities many years ago, 10 plus years ago, to, to report a death threat online. Um, uh, in, in my role as a community manager, you know, the police looked at me like I had three heads. So they weren't cruel, but they would just have no idea what was going on or what to do. <laughs> and like, okay, well, the internet, what, what do we do about that? We don't really know. Can't you just turn it off? Not really, it's my job. Uh, so, you know, we've come a long way, but we need to come even further, I think, and make it clear that this is this is our health and safety. It's not, even when harms occur digitally, there can be uh, psychological uh, kind of effects on, you know, emotional labour, effects of even just having to deal with this, even if there's not an explicit threat, just sitting in front of and managing and moderating this kind of content, um, being forced to encounter it has demonstrable effects on one's psyche and one's mental health, let alone any other physical, physical or physiological effects, let alone, you know, the threat of potential harm. Ab- ab- absolutely. V- v- Vanessa, it's um, a really important piece of work that you've uh, put together. Uh, so t- tomorrow, the launch of the report uh, entitled Don't Read the Comments, Enhancing Online Safety for Women Working in the Media is launching. We've been speaking to one of its main authors, Vanessa Paik. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Absolute pleasure, guys. Lovely to talk to you, as always. And, well, yeah, thanks for, thanks for helping build awareness. Absolutely. We hope to speak to you again soon. Um, can I just hop in, Dan? If you want to check out that report, you can see it at genvic.org.au. Absolutely. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Well, guys, have we got a bit of weird news to bring the end of the show in? We, we do have uh, a few things. Um, just a, a quick um, thing, which we'll maybe tweet a link out to. There's a, a great um, a breakfast series, digital breakfast series online, Importance of Women in IT, Why Women Make Great Project Managers. Um, we'll post a link out. Um, we're still doing the online thing. I actually kind of like it. I like to get out. I like the fact that we can go back to places, but I do like a sneaky kind of watch it in your PJs, um, eat some crumpets kind of session. But um, Laura, you've also got yeah. something great. Especially if it's too early. Oh, yeah, there's just this funny thing that's been going around the internet that, you know, we love weird, random Reddit stuff. And um, if you haven't seen it already, there was a piece of video on Reddit showing um, a lawyer who was trying to give evidence in a case. Um, They were doing it remotely via Zoom, just as everyone's doing it. Only he had a cat filter on his face that he could not turn out how to work out how to turn it off. (laughs) So it's very funny and very sweet. And he's saying, I'm here. I'm live. I'm not a cat. And I am absolutely sure that's going to be a mean format. You heard it here first. Absolutely. I like, I like that we were, you know, we're almost in a year into this kind of, you know, Zoom and online kind of working thing. And I remember when the first uh, viral one of those with the woman who turned herself into a potato happened. It was probably in <laughs> May or June of last year. And we're like, ah, oh, you know, teething problems. We're, you know, we're, we're still getting used to this. That's fine. This dude's had a year. If he doesn't know how to stop himself being a cat, it's entirely on him. <laughs> yeah. He, he sounded like an older gentleman. Maybe his grandkids were playing with a video. Let's give him a little we'll slack. Give, uh, we, we, we can give him a little bit of slack. That's okay. Some, That's okay. Somebody I spoke to today did point out, imagine the poor, poor person who was potentially on trial here going, oh, my God, there's a cat speaking. I'm going down for sure. Um, <laughs> I know. Imagine if that was your key defense sense. witness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, last time I got tried by a cat, I lost. In any, in any battle between human and cat, human always loses. Yeah, and hey, they are judgy. Judgy, yeah. They're incredibly judgy. Hey, it's it's been great being back for the first uh, show of Bite Into It for the year. Thank you so much to our guests, Julian Burnside and Vanessa Paik. Thank you to Warren and Laura. It's so good to see your faces again for the first time this year. We've been Bite Into It.
Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.